Hi everyone.、Uh, if you're listening to this episode, you probably just listened to the one we released just before that, and that was my first discussion with Christoph on Phoenix's.、Um, what else was there, Christoph? Uncorking. A lot of uncorking, meditations on thought,、uh, evaluations of exactly what makes life worth living, the delights in life. I mean, it was a. It was a wide-ranging conversation that flowed and was fluid and deeply enjoyable. I think, at least for me. Yeah. So, if you haven't listened to it, it's highly recommended that you do.、Um, and if you are here because you have listened, well, it's time to move on and say that we decided to reconvene for maybe a discussion on love, which hasn't been a topic on this podcast yet. Interestingly, right? Because how tightly woven. Um, our love and well-being, so it kind of flowed in this direction naturally, and I'm super, super excited to be、uh, back on the horse with you, Christoph, and do it. Likewise, yeah, man. Well, how should we go about it?、Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just let you uncork me.、Uh, give、right. me what well, you have. <laughs> all right, sure. I'll give you my meditation on love, an opening thought. And then we can see where the conversation evolves from there, when、yeah. the champagne of the mind is pouring, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And <laughs> so, what I want to say about love is very simple. You know, I think that if you're trying to imitate the ideal type of love, you might begin by asking exactly what constitutes love. So you might begin by doing something like acknowledging the distinction between beneficent and unitive love, where beneficent love is where you want the good for somebody, whether or not you're with them. And unitive love is where you want to be with somebody, whether or not it's good for them. But then,、mm. you know, there might be another stage after that. This is there's a few stages here, so just be ready for that. The stage that comes after that might be that ideally you want to be so fundamentally loving that almost comparable to a divine perspective, the beneficent and the unitive love are fused, where you know that the best thing that you could do for somebody is be with them. And so now, beneficent and unitive love no longer are incompatible with each other, but rather Operating harmoniously because your way of wanting the best for somebody is to want them to be able to be with you in the way that you can ensure. And then you might have another stage. Once a relationship has sort of begun, how do you go about coordinating the conditions that explain whether or not it's true love within the relationship? And here you could deploy the Cambridge Platonist, who discuss three conditions to true love. The first condition is that you. Love the person more than you love being loved by them, because if the object of your affection is the love they have for you, then it perishes the moment that they're sick, in a coma, otherwise distracted, or in some way, shape, or form can't make you feel loved, and so you no longer love the person because what you loved was something other than them. You loved their love for you. The second、mm. condition is that you love who you are around them, because we're highly socially flexible beings. We transform in the company we keep. And、we ought to be able to love both parties involved in the relationship. The love has to flow both outward and inward for it to be true love. And then the third condition is that you have some third object of affection, something you both love at the same time that is distinct from either of you. And this could be philosophy or art. But this way, for instance, if you went to a museum together, you could be in a loving state together without being focused one on another. So that's another stage. Now we're getting to something a little bit more philosophical. You might want to go ahead and say, "Okay, all of these relation relational types of love are beautiful." But what about somebody like Ibn Arabi, who's a great Islamic mystic and philosopher, who said that he was both the beloved and the lover, the knight and the maiden, 
Or in my own language, I use an infinite variety of relationships to describe this, like being the healer and the healed, the savior and the saved, the general and the soldier, relating to yourself internally as you would relate to another in an equally loving fashion. And so now you've unlocked internal love, which is a kind of infinite fountain of self-belief that can be so powerful and transcendent. But you might say that there is a final stage beyond even that. And this is the final stage. It's when you get to the point where you think of love no longer as a type of relationship, as something sustained by multiple parties, but maybe as more primordial than that. Love is a kind of cosmological force, something that has its own ontology, and it can flow through you as vivaciously as any other force in this universe can. Thomas Nagel, for instance, would write about the way in which consciousness and material make up the fundamental furniture of the universe, and I would add the condition of love to that. And if you believe in that, then you can believe that you go from objectum to injectum with love. You go from the idea that there's objects of your affection to the idea that you're being injected with love constantly. And now you are something beyond the typical human experience. You are merely a, a sort of vehicle for love. And in this way, you get to taste the ghost of love. And I think that final sort of semi-mystical conclusion is the ultimate destination. And that's sort of my theoretical analysis of how you might move about the world of love, step mm. by step, stage by stage. Yeah, well, I'm I'm bandit note taking, and I feel like maybe I should have done something like it. <laughs> um, but I'll start, I think, with the I, I like your um, framing of what is it: unitive love and beneficent love. Mm -hmm. uh, this this really. Um, looks like it, it sits well with, with the Greek concepts of love, you know, or its aspects at least, which is eros, um, desire, right? Or mm -hmm. even lust when it comes to people. That seems mm -hmm. to be the kind of unitive thing that really makes you want to possess something and not let it go, right? So mm -hmm. either you become very um, envious of whoever has, has it or jealous if you do have it and you're afraid of losing it. Um, mm -hmm. Then there's uh, philia, which is, uh, friendship, more like friendship, and this is love among equals. It's more like you want to break down any barriers between you and people that you love so that you may be able to have complete trust in them and not worry about, you know, lending them money or worry about any doing any of the kind of like accounting stuff that comes with a lot of um, more, um, you know, kind of... Um, transactional relationships. And then there's agape, which is this love from a parent towards a, a uh, from a parent to a child, more like, which is more kind of is just there is a foundational thing that you just want to see another person do well in life. And uh, it seems like the the latter two are more benef beneficent and the first one is, is unitive. So I, I want to highlight that this kind of matches well the, the ideas that you presented. And then the last thing which you said about, you know, love is some sort of cosmic force. I think we already see that uh, with Empedocles, like a long, long time ago, he basically mm -hmm. said that, you know, the cosmos has these two forces and it's, Hate disintegrates things, so it it couldn't it can be um, compared to or identified as entropy, 
something like entropy. And then love brings things together and creates order. Uh, mm. So these are, this is actually a, a very ancient idea and one that I do think we're not really looking at enough these days as, as really tying in this emotional thing with something cosmic because I think we are driven by a sense that we want to see more harmony in the universe and it's kind of not very clear why this is the case, but we sort of crave that on a, on a deep level. We just want to feel things that are harmonious. And if they're not that, we want to, um, be able to make them. So, and, uh, it's, it's very hard to see where it's coming from, but, uh, but it's, it's just something that, that we are. Absolutely. And, you know, C.S. Lewis famously said, in Eros, you'll have naked bodies. In Philia, you'll have naked personality. And there is something about this characteristically mm. possessive impulse within us that diminishes the quality of what we are typifying as love and ultimately should be reframed as beyond love. It's not really truly love because it's fundamentally in violation of a core tenet of love, which is that you want the best for somebody. And so I think that this basic distinction that you put out between Eros, Philia, and Agape is so essential in order to navigate. And I think the third, the sort of final stage within my stages of exploring what it's like to imitate ideal love uh, does harmonize well with Agape because you're right that there is a tradition in philosophy of seeing love as a force. And it's a, it's a kind of mystical perspective to hold. And uh, is a force that drives, and hate is a force that drives in another direction. And we can be swept up by the one or the other. And what what I want to communicate on this is that it might simultaneously be like a force, but we don't have to think of it as other than us. In other words, I kind of have in mind somebody like Eckhart Tolle here, who's however cheesy he might be in some people's eyes, he's, he's a good writer. And he talks about, you know, when you fundamentally connect with the being that you authentically are beyond all the appearances of the mind and the body and all the things that deceive you into falsely subscribing to your ego. There's love there. There's an abundant amount of love. And I think that one way we could look at that is like this. If the, for instance, Advaita Hindu tradition is right, that the truth is that we are all connected. We are all fundamentally Brahman. We all share in the participate in a singular unity, which defines who we are and what we are. And there is no division between us. Love is merely the impulse to truth. In that case, love is merely the impulse to say, yes, I acknowledge that I am not actually separate from you. And so when you get mm -hmm. in touch with your inner being, love is there because it is the way to explain why it is that you're interconnected and beyond interconnected, truly unified and indistinguishable from, uh, all other existing beings and all other life forms and non-life forms and so forth and so on. It's all a sort of pulsating, vivacious, vigorous existence of which you not only partake, but are. And so I think that love is an impulse to truth. Love and truth being indistinguishable from each other is really the destination that I like to try to encourage. But we do have these practical questions because love is, you know, I mean, to love is a verb right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. linguistically, it's kind of difficult to figure out, like, if you ascribe it as a kind of cosmological force as a state of being and so forth, 
what is that state of being? It's to be loving, right? So, it, but is that an attitude? Is that an actual substance? Because if it yeah. is a substance, then you could get to a point where you say something that is otherwise grammatically incorrect, like I am love, you know, like that's mm -hmm. like in the way that Al-Ghazali said, I am truth, you know, or, or Christ said, I am truth, um, the truth, the light and the way. So where you, you identify yourself as that thing. And I would like to encourage people to make that grammatically unwise decision and go ahead and define themselves as love. Because even though it violates the rules of the language, it encourages a certain understanding of what you are at your core beyond the appearances of mind and body that enables you to be truly and fundamentally strong and vigorous and caring towards others. But we do have the question of love as a verb, which is how do we translate this attitude into a sequence of actions that reflect what we've become and what we are and what's flowing through us. It's, it's so hard, right? It's love is really, it's the most, it's kind of really muddy waters. I mean, yeah, it's an emotion, but mm -hmm. you know, leave it just to be as an emotion without uh, fitting action. And, you know, very quickly say, uh, well, I don't care how you feel about her or him, but if you treat them like that, then it is not love. Then suddenly it's not mm -hmm. just the emotion. You have to act a certain way. Right. And, um, yeah, what if you have formed the kind of deep relationship where now it's more like friendship and there's a lot less of the unitive love, either because time has passed or because you have become one and there is no room for this Eros to be so, um, such a strong force anymore. And, you know, that, that is love, but it's, so it's, it's, it's very, it's very difficult. Like, yeah, if you just meet a stranger and you just treat them very well, you treat them with justice, let's say, and you're actually trying to benefit them actively. But, you know, you, usually you wouldn't say it's love because that's something that you would do with everyone. So love is also kind of exclusive in a way. You know you're feeling it toward some people, but not all. And, you know, forgive me, meta people, but I know... I believe you can, I, I, I do believe that you can inhabit a space where you do feel this kind of love for everyone while you're meditating with Meta, but not while you're actually going shopping and somebody cuts you in line or something. I just, I don't even think it's healthy because then it's not fitting to feel this emotion. Well, that, that, yeah, um, that brings so, up something really important. I'll mm -hmm. get to it when you're ready. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I was just going to say that love is so interesting because it has this very, very um, <laughs> yeah, vague borders when it comes to like touching on a zillion different things. And, and yeah, yeah, would love yeah. to hear your thought. Yeah, so the opening thought that I have responds to what you were saying about Eros as a sort of misleading way of describing yourself as being in a loving state. Because if you're, for instance, overly possessive, desirous, dominant, abusive, anything like that. You mm -hmm. could have all the tendencies of feeling to yourself like you're in love, but to mm -hmm. everybody else, you're, you're a cruel manipulator of a sequence of events that ultimately undermines somebody's fundamental right to be happy or to pursue happiness or to feel better or to be in harmony with themselves. And so you're taking something away from them actively. So because love is a verb, you can say they're not, you're not in love. Like you think you're in love to the degree that there's an emotional quality to it, mm -hmm. but that's merely a mistake. 
And something that I want to say about that is it reminds me of as early as Socrates, right? In, in Plato's Symposium, when uh, Socrates is, is meditating on love and says that um, it's a misreading, the first stage, Eros. It's a misreading of a response to beauty, that you want to possess it. And then you realize that you should respond to the beauty of somebody's soul rather than their physique. And then finally, you, you decide, you realize that you should respond to the form of beauty in and of itself, rather than any particular version of beauty. And I think that that sort of escalation of more and more abstract understanding of where you're going and what you're up to is precisely the solution that allows you to say love might actually be indifferent and impartial in certain kinds of circumstances and yet be love at the same time which mm -hmm. is what you're talking about with how you might treat a stranger lovingly without being in love with them. Certainly not in the erotic sense, but uh, you might have that agape love because your impartiality towards the situation, your ability mm -hmm. to treat everybody equally and fairly is a reflection of a core abstract and not felt love for humanity. And I think that if you escalate to that abstract level, you open up a lot of doors and possibilities that enable you to be much stronger because I think that we overly depend on our emotions. I think that's one of the flaws of how we interpret love and everything else, which is why I gave the early stages where it went to something beyond just the emotional character of love. Um, in other words, what I want to say is this. If love is an emotion to us, it's just a dose of a certain kind of emotion, then invariably the research is out on this. I think you can have a tribe of 150 or so. And uh, and you can't really go beyond that and actually have a, a loving attitude in the sense of an emotional attachment to many more mm -hmm. people than that. It might be a slightly yeah. larger number, but it's not very big. So you can't have a universal agape. If love is something other than an emotion, and it is truly some kind of an ideal form that you give yourself over to, and you respond to that, then you can really embrace an attitude of love towards everybody. And the last thing I'll say about this is the emotion of love can be misleading in itself in a certain way, which is this. We often talk about compassion as something that's fundamentally good because, you know, to be compassionate is to feel with somebody. And mm -hmm. so therefore you are kind of in tune with what they're feeling. You're suffering with them. But in reality, this can limit your ability to actually be there for them. I'm sure we've all had times when we've been overly taxed emotionally by our mm -hmm. willingness to fully participate in the dosage of suffering somebody we love is going through. And then we realize we, we start to create a distance between us and them. So in order to enable yourself to be stronger and to be there full time, you might have to have something other than compassion, a sort of response to the ideal character of love where you say, look, if I love this person, I listen, I engage them in conversation, I offer them the insight if they want insight, I give them my attention and time and care and I'm strong. And I'm, if they're really disabled in a certain way, I, I'll go get them groceries. Like all these things that you do in the absence of feeling the, the connected emotion of compassion, because love can be impartial and indifferent emotionally and yet nonetheless be something so much more profound than merely an amalgam of various sentiments. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, Paul Bloom wrote a book about, uh, you know, the downsides of empathy, basically. And um, yeah, it's definitely not necessarily the fitting thing to take on somebody's feelings because, you know, you might crumble with them and not be able to perform any kind of uh, beneficial action. 
um, yeah, I realized that we could, you know, talk about the theoretical aspects of this, like philosophically, as, as they say, philo philosophy in uh, academia. But I'd love for us to kind of look at maybe break down a bit how these things tend to happen in, in real life. So mm -hmm. we could maybe think of, you know, things that could be applied in real life for people who are listening. And I'm really interested in the, what seems to be, if not the natural, then at least the normal or the commonplace way of establishing relationships, um, mm -hmm. in, you know, just meeting people. And really the, the interesting thing that for, I think most people, you know, the, there is, uh, at least one romantic relationship that's very special to them. Like I'm not, yeah, I, I personally know nothing emotionally from my first person perspective about polyamory or something like that. But so I'm going to stick to, let's say, um, just a monogamous relationship and like the, the, the natural unfolding of that. So it, it does start in my experience with, uh, with a more, with a stronger emotion, right. Of wanting to be with this unitive aspect of love. And, mm -hmm. um, that seems to be normal and healthy. No. Right. So, I mean, it's like the sugar in a cake. It depends on it. It'll take you there. It'll get you to the, to want to desire the thing, but does it actually make it healthy for you? Right. So a cake without any sugar, and some people do like cakes that are devoid of sugar, but the vast majority of us don't um, the sugar adds the sweetness. And so there's this mm -hmm. neurochemical process that can take place, which is that we can truly be overwhelmed by somebody's presence. We can become insecure and intimidated in their company and excited every time that we might get a call from them or a message. And it's a very highly addictive process, but for everybody that I know, who's been in a long-term relationship. And I have sort of been in one in my life. Eventually the dosage of sugar decreases, right? Like you don't mm -hmm. have, you're not, you're no longer compelled by sheer passion to sustain the arrows that was governing your connection to somebody. And you find other ways of interacting with them that sustain the relationship, which I think is when healthy and Eric Fromm writes about this in the art of loving, for instance, it's when healthy couples really maneuver into their strong relationship is because they have what he calls fraternal love, they, the, which is basically agape, a kind of universal love that is controlling their decisions since the Eros has faded in time. Yeah. So I, th I think the initial stage, we do have to think about it like sweetening a cake because otherwise we, you might not want to eat the cake anyway, right? So mm -hmm. um, it's sweetening a good to make it more tempting, more reliable, but... I think if you predicate love on that, then somebody like Schopenhauer has, who is a very cynical view has something to say on this, where he says like, look, it's just a, it's a magic trick to get you to propagate for the species. Right. Um, it just consumes you pick somebody right. whose traits are, you know, kind of either in his case, he would think you pick somebody different from you and therefore incompatible with you. And it's their differentness that makes them attractive to you. Mm. I'm not sure that that's been, born out is true psychologically or otherwise, but nonetheless, you're doomed to pick somebody who's wrong for you based on the fact mm. that what allures you, what attracts you to them is predicated on a process that isn't different to your overall 
uh, joy in the sustainability of the relationship itself. It's looking merely to generate the propagation of the species over time, which gets, right. which is one of the reasons why I think it naturally flows that we discuss self-love as, as impassioned, as significant, as powerful as this kind of a uh, more romantic love in a certain way, which is this. Um, if this love is a magic trick to get you to propagate the species is accurate, then it's not the only way that you try to establish yourself in this world. Because Bergson wrote about the need for specialness, right? And I'll get into mm -hmm. tangible, actual stories from my life with practical guidance as well, if that's of interest to you. But let me do one last philosophical riff just to mm -hmm. <laughs> sort of paint the scenery of the discussion. But Bergson wrote about the fact that basically you want to transcend your role as a mere propagator of the species. You want to transcend your role as a mere instrument oh, yeah. to sustain the species. So you look for your specialness. And in other words, you're trying to make your mark on the whole species that endures over time. And this is the kind of love of being special. And I think that's where it gets very dangerous because we oscillate between those two needs. We both want to have the magic trick pulled on us and we want it to work on somebody else harmoniously with us so that we could have all the pleasure-based, fantastic, desire-oriented activities that really bring us a deep sense of joy at the early stage of any relationship. But also we want to sort of almost dominate the species to show that we're special and leave our mark on the whole of humanity over time. And we oscillate between the need for specialness and the need for romantic love. And I think that's basically a caricature of how a lot of people live because a lot of people go between what they're trying to do professionally or through their hobbies that makes them unique and incredibly valuable to humanity. And then what they're trying to do uh, for their partners or to get a partner and they just swing back and forth. And I am no exception to this rule. I swing back and forth mm. between the two. I have successfully decreased my dosage of a need for specialness. Um, I, I feel special in virtue of being an existing being now. I really do. But I haven't successfully decreased my need for romantic love. And I've talked with you about that in the past. Like I, I enjoy, it doesn't matter to me how magical it is or isn't. It is nonetheless a deeply enjoyable part of existence. And as somebody who spent three years basically locked up in a mental hospital, unable to participate in any kind of loving relationship, um, aside from various fantasies about the nurses who had no interest in me and it would be <laughs> illegal if they dated me. Um, right. I was unable to actually be seen as somebody with the right to have a loving relationship. Mm. And those three years took a lot for me. You know, there was kind of, in a, in a sense, the sort of peak of your romantic time, the late twenties, early thirties, when if you haven't found somebody yet, that's usually when you find somebody. Mm -hmm. And there I was stranded on an island alone, basically. And so I developed a great need within to pursue romance and have lightly pursued it with absolutely no success, more or less, um, since. But, you know, I realized, I'll just say this, I realized that it is this chemical equation at the early phase and that I had one major problem, as, as silly as it is, as much as uh, potential partners will talk about wanting to love your soul or your mind or your intellect or anything else, they're also heavily controlled by how they feel about your body. And yeah. that plays a role because it, it, is a, it is a shallow process, fundamentally. It's just mm -hmm. a reaction, body to body, that 
encompasses also the mind as well, but it begins with the body to a degree. So once I started getting in shape, I haven't pursued anybody, but I've, I've had a lot more interest in me and I'm still got a long ways to go before I'm really in shape because I completely let my bodily life deteriorate. So, you know, that's my practical guidance is just, if you really care about love as the magic trick version of love, then go ahead and, and be vain, take care of your appearance, take care of your mind and your elegance and your eloquence as well. Do all those things that are performative because it is at the early phase, a very performative activity, but don't lose your soul to it. You know, preserve that thing, which makes you transcendent and beautiful and wonderful at the core level, because that's, what's going to sustain the relationship over time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's sound advice. I mean, for me personally, meeting my wife, um, was at the time when I finally understood friendship, like the, con the mm -hmm. concept of friendship. And that is how I approached people. I made, uh, being a friend to them, my default and trusting people, the default, yeah. not in a pathological way, but in a way that really al allows, even allows this thing to really come. And this is not just with her, but just with people. And I think that would be, something that I'm trying to, uh, tell people who are out there, it's actually much easier to set these things as a default rather than try and think that if you home in on somebody because you're attracted physically or something like that, and then you like let your guard down or decide to trust them, that's actually harder. It's actually easier to always be a friend to people and a few of these people will also prove to be attractive to you and attracted to you. Um, and once this happens, you're in a very good position to turn this into uh, both a unitive uh, connection and a beneficent connection. Because also, if you have thought out about what friendship means ahead of time, let's say philia, and what it means to break down boundaries so that you would be able to get as close as possible, closer than what the body allows, because we're always going to be, um, you know, the, the body is a very defined thing, you know, where it starts and where it ends, and we're never going to coalesce into one body, with, but our souls are much better suited for actually a type of coalescence, you know, if not complete coalescence, then at least partial coalescence. And over time, you know, the idea of having two bodies and one soul is, is beautiful to me. I guess not many people see it as, as very lucrative, but I do. I always did. And another thing that I can say, you know, that once we have found each other, me and my wife, we, um, still in the period of, you know, falling in love, having the intense, um, emotional aspect of, of love active, we already discussed friendship a lot and what it means to, to go forward long-term, you know, being completely aware at that time, because we didn't meet each other as, as kids or anything. Like I was 27, she was 31 and we already knew how, what the mechanics of the relationships are and that there is, um, there is an end to the honeymoon phase in terms of strong emotions. So we were discussing that. And then lastly, I want to point out to anybody listening that actually we had this very, um, special moment in our relationship 
when we were just with one another together, sharing a moment. And, you know, a lot of people I think are going to think that this must be some sort of climactic, like sexual moment, but actually it wasn't. And I couldn't tell you how to, um, you know, set the stage for that sort of moment to happen. But at a certain mm -hmm. moment, we just looked one another in the eyes and we just asked, oh, did you feel that? And we were like, yeah, I felt that. And just the biggest smile on her face um, yeah. just came up. And we knew that we were connected for the very long run rather than this shallow things. And now we're not just carried on this emotion, but if there's something deeper and, you know, an emotion maybe is transformed into a more like a mood or a foundational part of our personality that's going to carry us forward for a long time. And, you know, sadly, I don't know how to engineer that, but I, but I think it is cool to let people know that this is totally real and it, it did happen for us and it probably does happen for others. And I would love to hear if anybody's listening, I would love to hear if it happened to you out there who's listening, let me know because I'm, I'm very much fascinated with that, with that moment. Um, yeah. So I think that discussing friendship explicitly dialectically if possible in a, you know, in a way that really uh, pivots on listening to the other party and building something and a shared understanding of what friendship is, is going to greatly assist the attempt to live together for a long time and, you know, really have this soul with you that's going to help you, that's going to um, partake in this life with you, which is an amazing experience. Absolutely. And I, I find it foundationally captivating when somebody describes the way in which they can have a certain conviction that they've chosen the right person to be with, to spend their life with, and they know that the other person feels the same way. And this endures beyond the, the sort of miraculous moment of original uh, obsession with each other and everything else. And um, it's interesting because, you know, I think we're good. We're good counterparts to each other in this discussion. It's ironic. I'm getting messages from a somebody I went on a date with right now. I'm not looking at the <laughs> messages, but, um, but it's funny because, Anyway, it, we're, we're good counterparts in this discussion because you're somebody who's found a relationship that is happily sustained and powerful. And by every indication I've heard so far, an absolutely not profound, without challenges, I will say, of course, that. yeah, not yeah. without challenges, obviously, but a profound type of relationship, you know, and so you can kind of offer like, you know, it's like, uh, it's like when they do shows on success and you've got one guy who's made tons of money another guy who hasn't and they, but both perspectives actually matter significantly to the discussion. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and inverse your story. I'll talk about the end of one of my relationships um, mm -hmm. without naming names, obviously, but uh, somebody I dated for a few years and who I was, I was kind of wildly passionate about the whole time kind of dumped me, but, but made me dump myself more or less like, mm -hmm. Made it obvious she didn't want to be with me, but couldn't say it. So I was like, okay, so, you know, I'll do it. I'll mm -hmm. go ahead and dump myself. But I did ask her why, not why did she make me dump myself? I understood that was a sort of, it was both of our first serious relationship. And that was a, a sort of difficult thing for her to do. But um, 
but why she wanted to not be with me anymore. And she said, and I'm not making this up. I call it, uh, I don't want to use her name. So I'll just call it the X paradox, you know, because it is Mm -hmm. kind of a paradoxical way of breaking up with somebody. She said, I want to break up because I feel like you're too intellectually persuasive. In other words, I've forfeited my autonomy of thought to you. Mm. And I thought that's the most brilliant way to ever break up with somebody because it's a paradox. Like, look, if I said anything to persuade her to stay with me and it worked, no matter what (laughs) I said, it would prove her right. (laughs) It was a trap. And all I could do was say, okay, and let it be. So Uh that's exactly what I did. And that shattered me. And that wasn't long after my mother had passed. It was like, you know, kind of double punch to the face that almost knocked me out really. And, um, and that really shattered me. And then to be honest, I did spend some time again, I, I'm reluctant. I'm reluctant to talk about all these things because there's people in my social network who might know, and I, I won't say who or what, but I spent some time in a relationship with a woman who had a tendency towards physical violence, punching and hitting with her, the palm of her hand and so forth. And once giving me a concussion, um, you know, punching me even when I would be in bed asleep and I'd wake up and felt like somebody was dribbling a basketball on my face. And so I I developed a sort of hesitance towards relationships based on these two experiences, the experience being shattered by, um, you know, the, the X paradox, which was such a brilliant way of letting somebody go. And the experience of being kind of physically abused during a relationship, not kind of, but yeah, physically abused during a relationship. And I have um, decided that, uh, you know, I think there's a part of me after those three years spent banished from the world or romantic love in the hospital, there's a part of me that literally needs the dose of the magic to be so high that it leads, it's almost like Mm. a type of insanity for me to be Mm -hmm. willing to make myself that vulnerable and do that again. Mm. So I lean very heavily into friendships as a source of a sense of love. So I Mm -hmm. completely understand what you're discussing when you talk about opening your heart to the world. And what's ironic about that last thing is we do have to introduce cultural elements into how we frame this ability to open your heart to the world as in terms of inviting people into your realm of trust and friendship. Because in a place like the U.S., for instance, it's quite a manageable task in in the US people will give you a few minutes to talk to them at a bar or whatever, you know, male, female, whatever. Um, she, he, they, they'll give you a few minutes to talk to them in the bar. And, uh, and it, there's no assumption that's an aggression or romantic pursuit or anything. But in France, if, if you even look at a woman, it's like, because you're interested romantically, at least mm. in the countryside. So, mm. you know, I've invited people, everybody, I live in, the, in a small town in the countryside in France right now, and I go between that and Paris. And I think Paris is more open, but I've invited people to have a drink or a discussion or a coffee. And I've been told, like, you know, it's really weird to do that here. It feels like an aggression. Oh, wow. And I'm like, how do you make friends? You don't. You just have your childhood friends. You close mm-hmm. up your universe after that. And everybody else is a foreigner or a stranger, and you just keep them out. And uh, it has been a very punishing experience because it has left me in a state of relative solitude. I have a very small amount of friends here who are really incredible, but mostly I spend my time in the countryside in solitude 
as opposed to Paris, where I'm very popular in Paris. I have a lot of friends and uh, people I feel very close to there. But dealing with the solitude forced me to try to cultivate a, a nearly or extremely passionate relationship to myself, love-wise, where it was like, I'm falling romantically in love with who I am. And there was a moment in my life, I'll just say this as a summary, because I've been uncorked officially. This is a sequence <laughs> of unrelated thoughts. Um, there was a moment in my life when uh, I was in Los Angeles many years ago, and I had the thought that I don't love myself. And it was such a powerful thought that it explained so much of my behavior for so long that it was the first thought and the only thought I've ever had in my life that compelled me literally to fall, to fall down. Mm. Like I was like, I don't love myself. And I fell to my knees and it was just, my body couldn't handle the weight of that thought. And then I marinated for hours in a delicacy of self-love, a sense of self-acceptance that I'd never before experienced. And I think that was the beginning of the end of my deep pain in life. Mm. And uh, so that more or less is my complete ramble. Do with it what you will. If you want, I can ask you a question to make it easier to transition. But um, No, I, I want to I wanna go ahead and comment because I think that is very important. Like, obviously, my life is right now is heavily influenced by... Um, Ian McGill, McGillchrist's uh, The Matter With Things, which is this very, very thick book. And it's fascinating. And the whole premise of it is that he's talking about how we are creatures with two distinct brain hemispheres, each with its own set of talents, tendencies, and so on. And they are there's a delicate balance between how autonomous they are and how cooperative they are. And... It, even the relationship between them is not uh, completely symmetrical. So the left side of the brain, the one that has the la that has language and is about focusing very narrow attention and manipulating things, is also doing that to our right side, which is more concerned with the big picture. So it's almost tyrannical at times. Um, so the point is we have two hemispheres, and we know from split-brain patients that they have almost different personalities. So it makes sense that a lot of the inner strife and conflict that we're experiencing through life is actually these two hemispheres um, interacting with one another. And there could be harmony there. There could be disharmony there. And what you said about self-love, I think it's very important that within ourselves, we learn how to identify which hemisphere is currently dominant and be able to respectfully listen to each of them and have a more harmonious relationship between them, one that has a lot of respect in it. Um, and I'm planting a flag, like respect is a very interesting concept when it comes to love as well. Um, oh, yeah. You know, so to have this respectful inner dialogue and have this self-love, which then is going to put you... Uh, at a much more advantageous position when actually coming to other people and wanting to form a relationship with them, right? It allows you to have an attitude of approaching someone and let's say the, the, the stakes are high. So obviously a romantic relationship and not just somebody who kind of looked cool, but you're not really attracted to physically. Let's say the stakes are very high and you really want this to work 
to work out or whatever. And this person, you know, is either saying no on the spot or even uh, worse, quote unquote, uh, down the road after you've already been kind of given permission to step into their life, but then you're shut out again, which is, can be really painful. Um, self-love, self-love allows you to have the kind of thought that, well, if, if they don't realize that having me in their life is good for them, that's too bad for them. You know, they're losing mm-hmm. out because mm-hmm. that is a, that is a very, um, if you're in love with yourself or not in love, but if you have this self love and you're confident in yourself, you're going to be much less needy. You're going to be much less demanding. You're going to be overall much less of a drag on other people. Oh and yeah. It's going to make yourself a more attractive, be more tolerable in, in a, not just in a, you know, oh, you're not intolerable, but actually more welcome. Mm-hmm. And then third, more resilient if things don't work out because you still have yourself. That's great. You know, so that's just a, a comment that kind of came to my mind when it comes to, to self-love and the importance thereof. Absolutely. I, I think there's, you can't deny that it is interesting because sometimes people who lack self-love, I'm just playing devil's advocate for fun. Sometimes people who lack self-love are perceived as highly attractive because they're either so impatient with themselves that they work out ceaselessly. So they have a great physique and they, Hmm. they, you know, they get high powered jobs because they're trying to prove something and they're really trying to prove something. And they're perceived as very attractive despite the absence of self-love, you know, Mm -hmm. so long as there's the presence of something like success or, whatever else is there. And then in combination with that, they're actually not managing their emotions well, and that makes them seem mysterious. And mm. I have often said, look, mystery is the, the greatest of all mistakes when you're trying to figure out whether or not you want to be with somebody. If mystery is what pulls you along, <laughs> yes. you have made a mistake, a fundamental <laughs> mistake. There's no yeah. doubt about that because mystery is usually a bad sign. Like, you know, some people say, well, I really like this, you know, the kind of tall, silent type, you know, and, uh, and I don't mind the tall part. I don't judge like anybody can like whatever height of person they prefer, but the silent part, I'm like, no, that's a big time. No, no, because they're hiding from you and they're hiding from themselves. If, if all they can do is be silent, you have no idea. They might be wonderful. They might not be. And the fact that you're intrigued by the gamble of going with somebody who's silent is actually just one of the ways in which we kind of make the mistake of falling for people who lack self-love because we're attracted to their high dosage of mystery. And so I think that, you know, you're right. Self-love will generally make you more attractive, but sometimes the absence of self-love, which propels mm. a certain level of, of physical demand and uh, uh, professional demand and mystery and all these things actually ends up enabling somebody to be perceived as attractive. But what it takes away from them is no matter how attractive they are to others, they'll never be attractive to themselves. They'll never Mm -hmm. be able to achieve that second step in the Cambridge Platonist definition of true love, where they love themselves and the company they keep. They can't get there. And nobody can fix that for you. So it doesn't matter how attractive you are. If you can't love yourself, you'll never enjoy being attractive. 
Um, and I know because I, it's a bit of a shock, but I've been there myself where I had a very high level of success at a certain point in time. And I was in incredible shape and it was all driven by the fact that I had absolutely no self-love. Mm. There was nothing within me that felt like it was worth accepting. So I perpetually rejected everything about what I did, which propelled me to go forward, spend more time in the gym, spend more time studying and reading and writing and performing. And, and I had a lot of uh, potential partners very interested in me and it was not fun for me. It wasn't a blast for me because the pain that I felt constantly overtook any potential pleasure that could be derived from reciprocal relationships of any kind. I mean, it, you hmm. have to be able to receive love and usually to be able to receive love requires actually loving yourself in turn, thinking that you merit or deserve the love that you receive. Okay. I, I, I want yeah. to interject and, and ask you a question, like a follow-up question, but you know, at yeah. times I think it's just maybe one of the, the ugliest things or the most insidious is the fact that, you know, we go online and we go, um, we go look for these likes, right? Literally the like button mm -hmm. with the heart, right? Yeah. And the really successful people, you know, the performers, the singers, whatever, yeah, I think it's, well, literally now on like Instagram chat or something, you can see somebody talking and the and the, the hearts are just flowing on the side, right? There's like this, this ostensible pouring of, of love. So you can imagine mm -hmm. that at the, at the concert is like, everybody's looking at the singer and you know, everybody's just like these hearts, 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 which is a symbol of love, but the, the huge difference between, um, adoration or infatuation and actual love that, in, that nourishes the soul. You know, mm -hmm. I think that people, if, if there's anything that is, could be terrible for you, I think you should, you should, and everybody listening, we should be thankful that we don't get a lot of these hearts because, you know, getting a lot of these hearts seems to, at least it seems like if you look at a lot of the really successful people, it makes it clear for them, like how much of an empty calorie, this heart that has nothing to do with, uh, people actually knowing their soul, being in touch with their soul. It's the kind of love that's the most shallow and, uh, superficial. And it's just really interesting to, to watch that and see that people, I think without self-love, as you mentioned, the overachievers the crazy athletes, the successful businessmen, they, they look for validation and love. And it's, um, there's the misconception there that quantity is somehow ever going to replace quality. Right. And this is just not going to happen, man. Um, no. so that's a, that's a very interesting thing to point out. Um, so I don't know what, what, what do you think about that? Well, I, I have actually spoken on this before in company I keep, and the line that I like to use is at best, uh, a million likes would be a dim lamp in a dark mm -hmm. room. Yeah. And true love is the sun. And th there is just no way that you could perceive the one yeah. light as similar to the other. The sun can illuminate everything that you want to see around you for as far as the distance as you can possibly see the dimly lit lamp in your room or whatever can maybe enable you to kind of see partially some of the letters on a book or something. So 
you know, this way in which quantity can't replace quality is foundationally accurate to me. And I, it's, it's actually funny. I just, you kind of suggested earlier that, that we incorporate some sort of narrative discussion and practical guidance in this. You know, it's one of my ways of dealing with isolation is to write abundantly. This comes back to the point you were making is to write even to a point that some people might say is excessive. It's just the poetry, the prose, the essays, the letters, they burst out of me. Most mm -hmm. of it is handled at a personal level where I'll, I'll write to somebody that I know, I'll write them a letter. And that's always well received. And that is usually categorized within the domain of a kind of true love relationship, you know, philia in a sense. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I also post to social media and, uh, and I don't get many likes on social media and it has never phased me, you know, on my Facebook, I think my latest post probably has no likes because it's one of like 30 posts in a day on that's, <laughs> you know, five paragraphs long. Um, and you know, my Instagram is comparably low levels and my, my Twitter is very low levels. Like maybe a good post for me on Twitter will get like 10 likes. That's good for me. You know, if I, if I am measuring how many likes I get, but what I get out of it is I hold on to a hope that is beyond quantity, which is this, when I pour my soul forward and share it through social media, I hope that somebody in a vulnerable position because unfortunately, a lot of the world is in a vulnerable position. Here's what I have to say and responds to it positively in some way, shape, or form. So you can utilize the instrument of social media for the sake of trying to reach out, which is exactly what I do. I write a lot of mystical things and a lot of, a lot of caricatures and, and phrasings and portraits of love and things like that in order to say to somebody who's in their pain or suffering that it's okay that life gets better, and that if you're looking at the world in one way, maybe look at it in another way and see what happens. And so you have to determine your relationship to social media in general. But if you're fixing what counts based on the amount or dosage of likes you're getting, you have fundamentally misunderstood the benefit of being able to make all of your work readily public. The benefit of being able to make your work readily public is that there might be somebody who never likes what you say or responds to you or engages you in any way, shape, or form who was actually impacted. And if you're doing it for that, then you truly don't care about likes. I'm willing to humiliate myself by the measure of other people who see themselves as, and I have friends, you know, I have a lot of friends who are kind of uh, popular on social media. They have like a hundred thousand followers or more. And um, that's great you know, for them in that way but I don't see it giving them anything. I don't see right. their, their whatever, you know, 5,000 likes versus my three likes uh, meaning anything um, at all. I, I just can't, it's difficult for me fundamentally to see how somebody confl could conflate the dim lamp of a social media like with the sun of true love. And I think the reason mm -hmm. why it's difficult for me to see that is because I've been in a space for so long where I have been self-loving to a degree that actually compromised my physical and professional success because I didn't feel obliged to do anything. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. only recently have I said, actually, you know, I kind of want to shape, not by way of becoming special, but by way of mastering a craft, I want to shape myself in such a way that I'm truly a master of my craft, which is philosophy, that I rejoined the circus of 
academia and went back and plunged and deep dived into it. Deep dive. Um, yep. So get the uh, reference. Yeah. <laughs> and that was my Phoenix moment. <laughs> but anyway, the long, the, the, the summary of that point is this. When you have tasted the ghost of love, when you have actually seen the ghost of love and you've experienced it fully, it is very hard to go back and analyze yourself by the traditional metrics of validation because you no longer feel subject to the approval or disapproval of others. True love transcends all of that, and it doesn't require even another human being in order to experience it. You can develop that kind of relationship to whatever you conceive to be divine or natural or this really powerful phenomenon, which is that you are a being and you can actually play the role of the lover and the beloved, as Ibn Arabi said. Yeah. Yeah. I think in general, you know, and I'm, I'm going to um, tie it back to something we, we said earlier, but I think for now, I, I want to say that um, in general, the fact that we have two hemispheres that are in dialogue with one another gives you the opportunity to really try and understand any relationship which you might have with other people within yourself, which is really good. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can experience self-love, self-hate, self, you know, all that is like tyranny, domination, uh, subjugation, all of that are possible states of your own, in your own psyche. And I think you should notice and you're very likely to actually replicate them in a, in a relationship that's between you as a whole and somebody outside of yourself. Um, yeah. So another comment that I thought about was, was you know, why would anybody um, look for the dim light? I think that, first of all, I think now I'm speaking in the name of Ian McGilchrist, which I probably shouldn't, but he would say that it's a, it's a very left hemisphere thing to, um, and by the way, I want to say, he does not overstate or understate um, the importance of how the hemispheres are. You know, they're not like one is from Venus and the other from Mars. It's not as extreme. Of course, they do a lot of things like the same way. And it's, yeah. it's not to say that, that it's so pronounced that we should actually think about it all the time about how, they, how, how they're different. But the quantification is a very, is very uh, left hemisphere thing to do the ranking, which we're very prone to doing because then it's kind of, well, if you don't know, um, if you don't know the good as a, as a big picture concept, as a kind of concept, a universal concept, then, you know, the, the next best thing is probably to make sure that at least you're ranked up above somebody in some sort of, of measurement that makes sense to people. Like you're making more money or you know, you've had more sex, whatever it's like socially, mm -hmm. socially um, yeah, respected in our society. So that's a tendency to do that. And the people who look for the million likes instead of the one meaningful relationship are very likely people who have never basked in the, um, in the sun of love when they were little. So, you know, mm -hmm. small T trauma over time, like unloving parents or unloving um, parental figures or something like that. I think that's also something which I wanted to point out, but instead of us trying to go and solve that and find that sun, if it's just left unchecked and people are just going with the flow where it takes them, then they're going to end up 
um, looking for being in the um, either in the highest ranks or um, having the most likes or whatever. And yes, I completely agree. That's a dim light. Um, lastly, I wanted to say that I think it's very important to remember that in your family, if you have if you have a nuclear family, if you have even a society of two people, which is just you and the significant other, you know, it already by definition you mean the world to someone, and mm -hmm. that is just a, a framing that is related to what I just now said. But you know, in in Judaism they say that um, if you save just one person, it's like you save the whole universe. Right. Mm -hmm. Each one of us really contains the whole universe in a sense. And I think that's a very important framing to carry around with you. It's really, again, not about quantification. If you can matter to a few people, you've more than done uh, your share to be a special person or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I recently recorded an episode with uh, João Mateus, my friend, and it was about music. And we discussed how, you know, a lot of people are afraid that if they actually become, if they actually become part of something bigger than, than themselves that does well, they're not going to get full credit. And he gave a very um, powerful image of like, yeah, but you know, if you are a player in an orchestra and the orchestra produces uh a fantastic performance and the crowd cheers, the crowd is actually not going to clap you because maybe you're just a violinist in that, in that orchestra. But your peers in the orchestra are definitely going to give you full respect for being part of that because they understand that, you know, without you, it wouldn't have been the same. And that is mm -hmm. just as satisfying, if not more satisfying than being out there alone on stage and, you know, probably compulsively trying to make them laugh if you're a comedian or something like that. Right. The people who go at it alone and are known by name and are given credit specifically and are actually vain enough to not share it, you know, so I'm thinking Elon Musk, I'm thinking um, a, a sports player who who just receives an award and, you know, doesn't go up on stage and says, well, thank you to all the people who were around me or the Oscar winner or mm -hmm. something like that. These people are very unlikely of the type that you mentioned that is actually unbalanced and, un, um, and unself-loving. And mm -hmm. um, through that was, because of that, was able to push themselves uh, that far and, and get all the credit. They're probably not in a good place. Right. And this thing that you said about receiving from uh, your peers, the validation that you would otherwise have received from the audience, that the audience indirectly supported you by supporting the whole of the group that you were a part of. Um, it reminds me of something that Bertrand Russell said. And I think that it matters in this case. Uh, Bertrand Russell had these like new 10 commandments, basically in commandment number seven was don't try to live without vanity. That's impossible. Instead, mm -hmm. seek the approval of the right audience. In mm -hmm. other words, it might be true that we inescapably do seek to be approved and loved and supported by others. And I think no matter how fantastically you maneuver to get self-love in your system, to tap into a cosmological sense of divine love, you are subject to being a human and that you want 
love from another human in some way, shape or form. It could be philia, eros, even if somebody is giving you a sense of agape love, like where you, they're just giving you love because you're human and it has nothing to do with you in particular. You kind of want to participate in that. And the question then is, given that we do have this drive towards what is otherwise called vanity, how do we, and I think it's the question of this era as well, how do we control our vanity? How do we maneuver it, manipulate it in such a way that it works for us rather than us working for it? And one way to do that is to be very selective about what audience is going to be the audience that you seek approval from. And I think Rousseau actually would speak on this too. Rousseau kind of had a theory of the fall in terms of humanity before socialization being in a very good place. And then once we were socialized, we became vain and subject to senses of injustice and everything else. And we became little tyrants to ourselves and others. And, um, and basically Rousseau said, it's too late. We can't go back to the state of nature any, anymore. It's too late for mm -hmm. us to return to that state of nature. But here's what we can do, and it might be the best option. You can essentially, I'm rephrasing it all, but essentially you can, you can be, this is Rousseau, but the rest is my phrasing. You can be freed from yourself. You can utilize the presence of others through your socialization process to manipulate yourself to becoming the type of being that would appear to be free in a true way. So, you know, for instance, to make this more concrete, when you're selecting a, a potential partner, if there's any role that you play in determining who you're willing to be attracted to, um, select somebody who's going to motivate you to pursue something of fundamental value to you outside of the partnership. That's the third criteria with the Cambridge Platonist, something that mm. you both love outside of each other. So this way, even if the relationship fizzles out, in my case, it would be philosophy. If I selected somebody who really encouraged me to go ahead, think deeply, read profoundly, write ceaselessly, do what I like to do, do what I value doing, because I do believe in the fundamental importance of philosophy, which I think is rising rather than declining in this current age, this age in which people are very lost and they need to think through their lives. And I think philosophy can play a role in helping people do that. Um, you know, I would select somebody that doesn't discourage philosophy. And I actually had, I'll say two more things, then um, I'll, I'll stop the ramble. Um, <laughs> but I had an experience in my life where I, I fell for somebody. It was right after I got out of the hospital. I fell for somebody extremely materialist. And I had this moment. I was sitting at the family home in the jacuzzi and, you know, the bubbling water and everything. I was alone and I was just sitting there. And I had this daydream of becoming a rich millionaire so that I could I could basically seduce this woman, which Kierkegaard would call the aesthetic phase of our three stages towards the spiritual, you know. And mm. and then I realized, wow, I just fantasized about being Don Juan. Okay, I'm not going to – I went and prayed, not because – and I said this before, but not because I believe prayer is necessarily going to invoke the power of the divine to come to your aid. But because mm -hmm. prayer, you know, like C.S. Lewis said, you don't pray to change God, you pray to change yourself. Mm. I prayed for three days straight, begging for release from the prison of caring about somebody who really doesn't overlap with my values at all. And mm -hmm. on the third day, I was released from it, and it felt amazing. And so here's my wrapping up point, which is a little bit different, actually. 
Um, you mentioned trauma, maybe explaining trauma with its small t, maybe explaining how people get to that stage where they prioritize quantity over quality. But there is more than that too, in my opinion. As somebody who, I've, I mentioned this in the earlier episode, I've had my traumas um, in my life. They've been, they were quite serious and, uh, and I had to find a way to move past them. And what I realized is that, you know, despite the beauty of psychoanalysis and existential psychotherapy and all the things where you could simultaneously investigate and interrogate the origins of your pain and suffering or the origins of your misguided behavior or anything like that, um, there is another layer that is extremely significant, which is this. You could come up with an infinite way of describing the origins of your current scenario. And mm -hmm. I've done this with people where I'm like, do you think this happened or maybe this or maybe this? And they say, oh, yeah, those all sound good to me. That all, those, those all sound right to me. And mm -hmm. said, That's essentially, I think, a little bit of manipulation where you can just say, okay, let me give you a source story about why you are the way you are. And then once you confront the source, you're liberated from it in a sense. There's another mm -hmm. layer to it, which is independent of the source of your trauma or your attitudes or your behaviors. You can also look at what you're doing and ask yourself in this way, frame it as a decision you've made, whether or not it is, whether it's a reflection of your indebt indebtedness to the past or whether it's a decision you've made at some point along the line, frame it as a decision you made and ask yourself, do you still want to make this decision? Mm -hmm. And this is totally devoid of analyzing the source origin of the decision. Mm -hmm. It's just, I've made this decision. How do I feel about it now that I've made it for a while? And I'll give you one quick example, and then I'm truly done with the ramble. Um, the person that I mentioned, uh, they had become much more sexually active lately. And I asked them, I said, okay, um, you know, and we came up with a, a variety of reasons to explain why they became sexually active to a degree that is totally healthy and normal, but, but still for them was abnormal. And I said, what mm -hmm. if we just framed it as a decision? How do you feel about this decision to have, to be more sexually active? And they said, oh, I actually feel good about it. And I said, so what's, what's the worry? Like, you know, what are you worried mm -hmm. about in your life? And I said, well, not this, you know? Okay. So, <laughs> you know, it just, it can really, and it can go the other way as well, where you can say, look, I feel really bad about this decision I made and I'm going to break it. I'm going to go ahead and make another decision, whatever it takes. Right. So, yeah. 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 I, I, I like this framing. I think it's, it's very important that whatever decision we're making and, you know, not just framing things as, as a decision, but actually actions that we would as a default call a decision, mm -hmm. um, it's very important to make it a salient memory and have the reasoning ready for, for later when you are actually revisiting it and, and saying, um, why and also make, make love or at least understanding part of this moment so that you're able to, 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 to really tell yourself, you know, because Regret, I, I have my idea about regret and I recorded an episode on regret very early on with my friend Etienne. Um, but we don't want to 
constantly be regretting things. And one way of doing it is just remember that we did make a decision that it's mm -hmm. not some sort of, it just kind of roll down the hill and here we are. No, it is a decision. Like it's important to make decisions rather than just let things kind of play out without any kind of thought. Um, so I really like it. Yeah. Um, it's so empowering. I, Go on. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, yeah. And another thing I wanted to, to say is, you know, when we were talking very, very early on, it was part of your initial um, expose of this whole episode and the meditations on love. I think that another possible thing to do is when you are in a relationship with somebody, it's, and this is still something that I'm, I'm thinking about, but actually seeing ourselves as not the end all be all of our world is like our state and how we feel, but from the beginning, forming a relationship, seeing how well the relationship is doing and making sure that there is communication and the relationship is open. The, the highway is open and there are no obstacles there and really nurturing that I think, because, you know, there's this seeming paradox. It's actually not a paradox, but we're not going to get into it now. But you know, if, if you go and look for happiness, your chances of actually finding it really decrease dramatically. And it's the same with living well. So you need to focus on all the things that would naturally give rise to a feeling of well-being rather than this one thing of well-being because then you're necessarily going to reduce it to reduce it into its parts and then chase one part after another and then by mm -hmm. the time you get to part number 10 part number one is you know is gone somewhere it's like mm -hmm. it's gone it's a fleeting thing so you can't um put together the puzzle piece by piece is what i'm trying to say and you need to focus on doing something holistic that is not about your well-being and one way of doing it is actually looking at at relationships and and other people so uh, that's just something that came to mind that kind of ties back with um something you said uh very early on um yeah uh, i think we must cork ourselves at some point or at least wrap up yeah. this con this recording but i'd love to hear from you um, any kind of last thoughts that you'd like to get in? Well, the first one's really just an extension of what you were saying, which is, you know, just so it's, I'm sure you know this, but those, uh, apparent paradoxes that aren't paradoxes are called falsitical paradoxes. And, uh, that's when you get deceived into believing that, you know, for instance, somebody says the table is red and blue and it mm -hmm. appears to be a paradox because how could it be both red and blue? But if you, one half the table is red, the other is blue, Right. The second thing, which is way more on point than that, that was literally just a, my own randomness, the uncorked <laughs> side of me, um, is this. And I think this is where I want to end. I think I want to combine what you were saying, which is you should definitely consider relationships to be a decision. You shouldn't feel like it's uniquely an impulse to be around somebody, to spend time with somebody, whether it's philia or eros agape, whatever is motivating you, you shouldn't feel like it's beyond your ability to choose. 
Because mm-hmm. if you realize and you say to yourself, I chose to be with this person, you can renew that decision daily. And mm-hmm. you, it's very empowering to know that it's a choice and a choice that you could change. You don't have to be imprisoned to your past self. So foundationally, I believe that empowering ourselves through independently of whether it correlates to reality or not, through the ideology of decision-making, gives us a sentiment of self-acceptance and allows us to also go ahead and organize our lives in a way that, you're right, can be selfless instead of selfish. But when we're selfless, we feel better most of the time. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the irony of it, right? So we can go ahead and make decisions about who we relate to, who we spend time with, whose company we keep. We can follow Bertrand Russell and Rousseau and all these thinkers in terms of how we go about doing that. But at the end of the day, if we don't see it as something that we chose to do, something that we voluntarily committed ourselves to do, we will feel trapped in the presence of somebody else. And whenever you feel like you're in prison, it doesn't matter how glorious or luxurious the prison is, you want out. So that's my ending statement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So unfortunately I probably have to add one last thing. Go for it. Um, but that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the, what now I, I see, I view as a false dichotomy where you have, um, a self and then selflessness. And Mm -hmm. this is why relationships are so, are, are way forward for me to think about, um, actually living well is being in relationship with things because it's neither selfless nor full of oneself. You're, you're neither, you're invested in something. You're part of something you're, you're still there, but you're kind of diluted in a, in a bigger thing. And I wrote a thing on my Substack about self dilution so people can look it up, but it's, it, it, it's just so amazing that you can, you can, let part of yourself be part of something bigger. And therefore, you know, the person who's there and you're not doing so well right now, if you're very focused on, on this self, this other person, give them the the power to co-regulate with you so that, you know, they can, they can, um, contain some of, of what you have. And, um, yeah. So to sum up, I think that, uh, love and relationships and even more specifically than just relationships, not just being part of society, although that's true, like the, the close relationships where there are these stronger feelings happening are just absolutely necessary for living well. And the more we think about love and, you know, this whole discussion is by no means, um, concluded or exhausted between us. Um, we are going to be exhausted before the discussion. (laughs) So, but, you know, I just want to tell people to, to think more about it. And, you know, as for us, I'm, I'm sure we'll revisit. Most definitely. Yeah. Well, Christoph, thank you so much. And, uh, I can already tell that I'm going to make this a a, a periodical thing where you and I (laughs) get together on here and, uh, do more of that on different topics. I'm on board. Yes. All right, my friend. Until next time. Ciao.